Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Genesis, chapter 1. The title of our sermon this morning is The Fourfold State of Man. And under that title, we will look at the four spiritual states in which which man has and will live. The four states of man, first, his man in innocence, as he was made in the creation in the Garden of Eden. Second, man in sin after the fall in the Garden. Third, man under grace by which he is under the grace of Christ in salvation, and then fourth, man in glory, as he is in the eternal world, all who are saved. This topic of the fourfold state of man, it is found very clearly in the Bible, in the scriptures, but it also has a long history in the history of the Christian church. It became prominent first in the writings of Augustine, the great theologian of the early church in the early 400s in his debates with a man named Pelagius over the will of man, the free will of man. And then this idea of the fourfold state of man was further developed in the 18th century. A Scottish Puritan minister by the name of Thomas Boston wrote a book in 1720 entitled human nature in its fourfold state. And the book became so popular in the church in Scotland in that century that it was said that there were three books in every Christian home. First, the Bible. Second, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And third, Thomas Boston's fourfold state of human nature. The four states as Thomas Boston stated them, he stated them in this way, primitive integrity, man then after the fall in entire depravity, then he, the third state is begun recovery, and then consummate happiness or misery in the world to come. Now because Augustine was the first to develop the idea of this fourfold state, and Augustine wrote in Latin, Augustine described the four states in Latin words, and those Latin words have become famous in theology, and all theological students learn them today in seminary. And there are only three Latin words. We have a little Latin to learn this morning, not too much, just three words. First, non. Non means not. We already know that word, non. Not. The second word is posse, which means we may think of possibility or able to. Posse means he is able to. He has the capability of doing something possible. Then the third word is pecari, which means to sin. Three words. Non means not. Posse means possible or able to. And pecari means to sin. And what Augustine did is he took these three words and he ordered them in different ways to describe all four states of humanity. 
and we will look at those as we work through this this morning. The first state this morning is man in his innocence, man in innocence, man in his creation as God made him here. We read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Now I, I should mention this morning that I will be only covering the first two states and then this evening the second two states. So to this morning man in innocence and then man in sin and I would not want anyone to hear this sermon without hearing the second sermon tonight because man in sin, it is a difficult thing even for us to hear, but it is the reality of the Bible. But then there is man in state of grace and the recovery begins and then there is the eternal state which is to come. So here in Genesis chapter 1, we have man in innocence. Genesis 1 verse 26 Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is the sixth day of the creation. The first five days, God has created the universe in perfect order, everything in heaven, on the earth, under the sea, the vegetation, the living creatures, birds and fish, all things have been prepared as a living place, a habitation for the man and the woman who were made now in the image or the likeness of God. And this is what separated and separates man from all the rest of the creation in that we are vastly superior, elevated above all other creatures. This is what gives true glory and dignity to every man and woman that we are made in the image and in the likeness of God. Man has a mind by which he has intelligence and he can think and reason as no other creature can. He has affections by which he can love and hate. He has a will by which he may choose. He is a relational creature. He can communicate and enter into relationships with others. The highest relationship of man and woman was to be their relationship and their fellowship with God. And in the image of God means that man is a moral being. And God made Adam and Eve, in moral innocence, in perfection, and with moral integrity. Every faculty of Adam and Eve was in a state of perfection. Adam's mind was filled with light and truth, a perfect knowledge of who God is, no darkness, no distortion, no misunderstanding. His affections were pure. His will was upright. There was purity throughout every part of his being. There was no defect, no flaw, and there was absolutely no sin or even any tendency towards sin as God made him. He was the perfect representative of God and who God is on the earth. And it was seen in the open, transparent, and shameless fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God 
himself. And God was pleased. And he declared that everything that he had made was very good. We see here in verse 31. And God saw all that he had made. And behold, he says, it was very good. Notice those words in the beginning of verse 31. God saw all that he had made. He looked down from heaven. He surveyed all of his creation. Everything that he had made like a craftsman would survey a job when he is finished to see and make sure that everything is complete as it should be. And God looked now upon everything to see if anything was amiss, if there was anything lacking in the glory that it should have. And after he was done, this is what he said. He said, behold, it is very good. Exceedingly good is what it means. To the highest possible degree of perfection, everything that he had made was agreeable to his holy and perfect nature. On the previous days, God had said, God, it said God saw that it was good. But here it says that it was very good, exceedingly good. The expression is stronger here because now he has made the pinnacle of his creation in the image bearers of Adam and Eve. And he rejoiced and he was glad over all of his creation and the creature man and the woman were subject to him, ready to worship him and praise him in the garden. We can imagine Adam and Eve as they walked through the garden after their creation, that they would sing the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 and verse 36, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But the holiness of Adam was mutable or changeable, which means that he had the possibility of sin and this is implied in the prohibition that is given in chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17. Chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord's God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from that one tree you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. It was a test of Adam's love and his obedience. He had every provision for his happiness given to him, but if he broke this one simple command, he would die, he would lose his uprightness. Adam had what we call free will. He had the ability not to sin, and he had the ability as well to sin. The possibility of his sinning would have been abhorrent to him in his integrity, but it was still a possibility. So Augustine described man's state in innocence in this way with those Latin words, posse non pecari, which means posse able, non not. Pacari to sin, 
Adam was able not to sin. Posse non pecari. He was able to, to not sin, but he was also able to sin. He had free will. And it was all left upon his own choice entirely. Without any force from anything outside of himself. And without any compulsion from within his own nature. He had free will to sin or not to sin. We see another verse in regard to the way God made man in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes, just after the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And a very important verse, verse 29, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29, Solomon says here, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Here is Solomon, the wisest man in the earth, and he says, Behold, he says, I have found this out. This is a summary, the culmination of all my wisdom and my learning, and it is found in these two things, in what God did and what man did. How God made man and how man unmade himself. The first, the next phrase there in verse 29 God made man upright. In most English Bibles, it's translated in the singular. God made man upright. This is how he made Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, he made them upright in righteousness. They were made in innocence. They were made in perfect holiness, purity. Their uprightness is not something that they achieved. Their uprightness is not something that they obtained by any effort of their own, it was how they were created from the hand of God. This is what God did when he first made them in the Garden of Eden. God made man upright, pure, innocent in the creation. But what did man do? The second half of the verse tells us. But they have sought out many devices. They have sought out the inventions, the twisted ways of sin, contrary to that uprightness by which God made them. They sought these things out. Adam and Eve, down by the forbidden tree, they were seeking it out, apparently. They sought it out. They were moving toward it in some way. It was not by any defect in the way God had made them because he made them perfectly upright. It was not by any coercion or from any force from without or any circumstances surrounding them because everything in the garden was most pleasant to them and everything was most conducive to their obedience. God had put them in a perfect garden. He had said to them, from any tree, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. But from that one tree, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall die. Despite all the blessing that God showered upon Adam and Eve in the garden, they were still not content. And they had to have, they had to have that one thing that God did not give them. 
And they sought it out by their own free and independent will. And there arose this rebellion in the heart of man against God himself. And this is the history of the whole human race. And that's what he's really saying at the end of verse 29. They, that's plural. The whole human race now has gone in this way of seeking out all the devices of sin. So the question arises here. If God made Adam upright and holy and without any tendency within himself toward any sin, then where did this desire for sin come from and how could he have possibly sinned? Another question we might ask here is why did God not prevent the fall from happening if he is the sovereign, omniscient, and he is the omnipotent God Could he not have prevented this from happening? So these are the kind of questions that men ask in this regard. The Bible tells us what happened. God tells us what we need to know for our safety and our salvation. And we must accept by faith what we are told in the scriptures and we must not go any further. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. But the point here in verse 29 that Solomon is making is that God is vindicated. No charge can ever be made against him in his creation of man. He has made man upright and the complete responsibility for sin rests upon man and the human race in what they have done. He has made man in the beginning upright, but man has turned from him and sought many devices of sin. So the first state is man in his innocence. We come to the second state and here's where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. Man in sin. And I will try to give some hope as I work through it. Because there is hope for us. But man in sin is a very dark subject in the Bible. But it is true. And it does give us an understanding of the world in which we live today. We know what happened. Eve stood by the forbidden tree. She was tempted by the serpent, the devil. She ate, she gave to Adam, he ate as well. And that was a fall into sin. But the question after the fall into sin is this. How did the sin of Adam affect his posterity and the rest of the human race? How bad were the effects of sin upon mankind That was the great question in the early church, and it was the question of the debate in Christian theology between Augustine and Pelagius. Pelagius was a monk who was born in England. He moved to Rome, and he became a teacher in theology in Rome in the late 4th and early 5th century. Augustine was a bishop in northern Africa, modern Algeria in a place called Hippo. 
What we are dealing with here this morning is original sin. And by original sin, we mean not just that first sin of Adam, but we mean the doctrine of how Adam's sin affected the rest of the human race. That's what we're looking at. Now, Pelagius argued that Adam acted in the garden as an individual. He acted for himself alone so that the sin of Adam was in no way passed on or transmitted, imputed to the rest of the human race. Adam and Eve, they were only a bad example and nothing more. Adam's sin had no effect on his posterity after him so that every person born into the world is like another Adam with the same free will as Adam and Eve had before the fall. And having free will, they are able to choose, they are able to obey God's commandments, and they are able to earn his favor. Now Pelagius admitted that all men sin, but all men sin because the temptations are too strong for them. They do not sin because they have a sinful nature that has been passed on from Adam. They do not sin because their wills are bound to sin or they are the slaves of sin by nature. They only sin because the temptations are too strong. And because man's will is free, he does not need any special grace from God to choose what is good. He is able to do it from himself alone to do good and earn salvation. Augustine believed the opposite. That Adam in the garden acted not just as an individual for himself alone, but God had made Adam a representative of the entire human race. Sometimes we call Adam the federal head of the human race, which means that whatever Adam did was to be transmitted, imputed to all of his posterity. So Augustine's understanding of original sin was that both the guilt and the corruption of Adam was passed on to all his posterity. The guilt of Adam's sin, so that we are born condemned by his sin, and the corruption of his sin, so that we are born with a sinful nature into the world. And our sinful nature means that we are in bondage to sin, we are by nature the slaves of sin. And we are not able to do anything that is pleasing to God. We have no free will. We have no power to choose and do what is good or even to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our wills are bound to sin until they are set free by divine grace and power from heaven. Man in sin has, by his sinful nature, now this compulsion from within him to sin, and he cannot in himself escape from it. Augustine described this state of man after the fall as non posse, non pecera, not able not to sin. 
not possible not to sin. A double negative by which he meant that man is now able only to sin. He cannot live without sinning. He is bound by this compulsion of his nature towards sin. As we must breathe to keep our physical bodies alive. So man must sin because he is a sinner. We sin because we are sinners. We must act according to our nature. Now, to many, the Pelagian view is, of course, more attractive because we have no federal head like Adam who acts on behalf of the whole human race and affects all the rest of us. And every person can act on his own. We are not in union with Adam and what he did. But even if that were true, which it is not, and we'll see, But even if that was true, it would not relieve anyone of their own personal sins, which every man has before God. Pelagian view is a humanistic view. The question really is, what does the Bible teach? That's what we need to look at. Now, the teaching of Pelagius was condemned by two church councils in the early 400s, and Pelagius himself was excommunicated by the early church as a heretic. And the view of Augustine was adopted by, as the Orthodox Christian understanding. But Pelagianism is still not gone because it's been resurrected time and again in different forms. And they call it sometimes semi-Pelagianism. It's really, we see it today in what is called Arminianism which is that man has a free will and he is able, he still has some remnants of a free will. He is able to respond positively to God. He may need a little bit of the grace of God, but the grace of God alone is not sufficient. God can do whatever God can do with him, but then man must finish the work by his own free will in coming to Christ. That's a semi-Pelagian view. So we need to look at the scriptures The first passage is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is dealing with the entrance of death into the world and the resurrection and eternal life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a very helpful, powerful verse. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22. He says to the Corinthians, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. In Adam means in union with Adam. Paul means Adam as our representative and we in union with him in his sin and the consequences of it. In Adam all die. We might ask the question, why would Paul even mention Adam? If Adam, if Adam and his sin had nothing to do with his posterity. What Paul is saying here is that all men die because of their union with Adam and what he did in the garden. Why do we die by nature? Because we were all in union with Adam and his sin is imputed to us all. Paul does not say in the beginning of verse 22 
For as in every man's individual sin, all men die, which is what Pelagius would say. But he says, as in Adam, and by his sin imputed to us, all die. But the same thing is true in regard to Christ, the great Savior. He is the last Adam, and he is also the representative head of a new human race. So that all who come to Jesus are now in union with Christ. So that everything that Christ accomplished in his perfect life and righteousness is given to them as well. And just as in Adam we all die, he says, so also. He says, so also in the same way, in Christ, in our union with Christ, all who believe shall be made alive and have eternal life. In Adam, there is death in Christ. There is salvation to all who believe. So the verse very clearly here teaches that Adam and Christ are two representatives of the entire human race. In Adam comes death. In Christ comes salvation by union with them. We are in union with Adam by nature. We are in union with Adam with Christ only by faith. We can turn back to that passage we looked at earlier in our reading in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Paul says here in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, that is the one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all sinned. Now when he says there, all sinned at the end of the verse, we must interpret that as meaning that we all sinned because of our union with Adam as our representative head, because that's what he clearly teaches now in the rest of this chapter, that Paul here goes on in these following verses to explain that in Adam comes sin, condemnation, death, in Christ comes righteousness, justification, and life. What Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 5 is he is further explaining what we just saw in 1 Corinthians 15.22. In Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. He opens it up a little more here. I'll read only two verses, verses 18 and 19. He says, so then, as through one transgression, that's Adam's sin in the garden, there resulted condemnation to all men. The condemnation, the guilt of Adam was passed on to all men. Even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. In the same way. By that one act of righteousness in the whole life and death of Christ, in him there is justification of eternal life to all men. Verse 19, so as through one man's disobedience, Adam in the garden, the many were made sinners. The corrupt human nature passed on to all men so that all men are now sinners because of Adam. Even so, he says, in the same way, Through the obedience of the one, the one man, Christ, the many will be made righteous, whoever believes in him. 
So Paul is teaching the same thing here. We were in union with Adam by nature. And we may be in union with Christ by faith. Now in Romans chapter 6, Paul goes on to explain more of the consequences of Adam's sin upon us. He calls us, he tells us that we are the slaves of sin by nature. In the beginning of verse 17, chapter 6, verse 17, he says, Thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, that's what we are by nature as we are born into the world, bound to sin as the slaves of sin. You became obediency from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed by the gospel. We can be set free. Verse 18, having been freed from sin, you became now slaves of righteousness. But by nature, we are slaves of sin. Now in chapter 8, of the book of Romans, chapter 8, Paul speaks again of the fallen nature of man in sin, chapter 8 and verse 7 and 8. He says there, verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile at enmity toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to. To do so. Now, Pelagius said that man is able to obey God's law. But Augustine said no, based on what Paul says here, that no man obeys the law of God. His mind is hostile toward God. He is not even able to do so. And then in verse 8, he says, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Before salvation, Man in his sin, it is impossible that he could ever do anything to please God because he is a slave of sin and he is bound in sin and he is not subject to God's law. Jesus taught this very same thing. John chapter 8 and verse 34, he said, Truly I say to you that everyone who practices sin is the slave of sin. Paul said in Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, For we also once were enslaved, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We can turn in our Bibles to a couple of other verses. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We can look down as well to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way all flesh, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Back in verse 6, in verse 5, we see the effects now of the fall from Genesis chapter 3. In the beginning of verse 5, the Lord looks down from heaven with his omniscient eye. 
He looks over all flesh, all the human race. What does he see? He sees wickedness. Not among just some people, but the entire human race here is spoken of in every place, every individual. There is no one who is exempt. Every nation, every people, every tongue, all born in Adam are under the power of sin. He does not say that the Lord looked down and found some wickedness and some goodness among men. He says the Lord looked down and there was only one thing that he saw and he saw wickedness. No mixture of anything else in the heart of men. And it says that it was great. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, which means that it was abounding. It was exceeding. It was multiplying. It was in great abundance, not only in the number of offenses, but in the abounding seriousness of those offenses. The Lord looked down upon the wickedness of man, and it was great on the earth. So, before there was a flood of water, there was a very great flood of wickedness among men. Where did all this wickedness that he speaks of, where did it come from? He tells us in the rest of the verse. That every intent of the thought of the hearts, of the thoughts of the heart, was only evil continually. It would have been enough for him to simply identify the heart of man, the inner man, the seat of his personality as being the source and the origin of these sins. But he traces it here down to the very depths, back to the individual thoughts that arise out of the heart, the thoughts, the thoughts that are in the heart of man. And then he goes even further down into the intent, the motive, what some call the imaginations which lie behind every thought. So God sees not just the thoughts of the heart, but the intentions of the heart. He looks down into the darkest place, into the most unfathomable depths of the human heart that no man can ever reach. The intent of the thoughts of the heart. But then we notice that little word, every in the front of the phrase. Every intent of the thought of the heart. Each and every one of them. Without any exception, every one of them. And then we notice those two little adjectives at the end of the verse, only and continually. The evil thoughts here are universal. Only, only of one type, only evil. And continually which means from birth through all of his life, day and night only evil continually, without interruption, without end, without intermission, from the beginning to the end of his life. So he begins with the word every, he ends with those two adjectives only continually. So could there have ever been, could God make ever a more complete and thorough, exhaustive statement of the desperate situation in the hearts of men. Is there any good that is left here? Can any good be said? Is man, is, can you find free will here? This statement 
Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That statement embraces every faculty in the human soul. There is nothing left in his mind, in his will, in his affections. Everything has been corrupted and polluted by sin. Can you find free will here? No. Man is bound in the bondage of his sin. And that's what God is saying here. The Lord is saying, I have looked down into the souls of men. And I have searched them exhaustively. And I have examined every thought, every intent of the thoughts of man's heart. I have found only wickedness and not a single good thing is left in him. What a terrible circumstance. What a terrible situation for man to be in. The whole universal race of humanity. We remember what Solomon said. God made man upright. God made him in holiness and perfection in the garden. But man, man has sought out so many evil devices. We remember what God said after the sixth day. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. But now the Lord looks down from heaven and the Lord saw the wickedness of man and where it all came from. All the corruption, the violence from every intent of the thoughts of his heart only continually. Can any good come from this heart that will please God? The answer is no, because even if it looks good on the outside to the eyes of other men, it still rises from a corrupt principle in the heart. And the God who looks upon the heart and must judge all things from the heart has made this statement. There is nothing man can do. He cannot please God in any way. All of this proves Augustine's view in other verses as well. Man in sin, after the fall, he can be described as non posse, non pecera. Not possible, not able, not to sin. Now this is not to say that Man acts out his human depravity to the full extent and is as bad as he could possibly be. Because in God's great kindness, there is such a thing called common grace in this world. And common grace is any blessing of God short of salvation. And one of the great blessings of common grace is the restraint of human sin by various motives. Men have consciences that tell them Convict them when they are wrong, and conscience often restrains men from sin. There is the fear of punishment by civil governments. There is the shame of public embarrassment. There is the one's upbringing by one by which one may learn certain habits which hold him back from sin. There are even selfish motives by which a man may know that if he does wrong, he will not obtain the earthly things that he desires. 
And people do all kinds of good things, kind things and good things, but they do them for their own earthly gain, for their own honor, for their own praise from other men. The gospel and Christianity, the preaching of the gospel in a land and the influence of Christianity has a restraining influence on sin. You are the salt of the world, Jesus said. So there are many restraints of common grace. But whatever good thing a man may appear to do outwardly, it all arises from this corrupt nature that is within. And there are times and places where God does remove the restraints. And we know of those places and what happens when he does that. And the world becomes, in many ways, like it was before the flood, filled with corruption and violence in every way. Now, we will turn to one more verse, Ephesians chapter 2. I hope that I am not driving anyone too down into the darkness of human depravity this morning. But I will say this. Tonight we will see the hope. And we must see how bad it is before we can see how glorious the salvation is that God gives to us freely in Jesus Christ. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Verse 1, he tells us, Paul tells us that we were under spiritual death. You were dead, he says, in your trespasses and sins. To be dead in sin means that one is unable to do anything in relation to God. A dead man cannot hear. A dead man cannot see. A dead man cannot will. A dead man cannot make any choice. He has no free will. He is bound in death. And so it is with men by nature. They are unable to do anything. They are dead before God. Cannot make a single motion of any will, any desire toward God. The state of death. And he says in which you, verse 2, in which you formerly walked. And then in verse 3, we too all formerly lived. There is nothing. All of this is It's for all men, is what he is saying. And we lived in the power of the course of this world, this whole world and its evil ways, its system of sin under the power of the devil and the spirit that now creates disobedience in the hearts of men, indulging all kinds of lusts and desires of the flesh and of the mind, So what Paul is saying here is really the same thing as what we saw back in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. 
description of the human nature by sin, in sin. So we've seen the first two of these. First two of the fourfold states of man. Man in innocence. Man in sin. A couple of brief applications as we close this morning. First, these two states are the only way to understand the human race and what has happened to us and what what has happened to the world in which we live. Man is a most amazing creature. He has intelligence, creative powers vastly superior to any others. He is able to achieve the most astonishing things in science, engineering, technology, medicine, every branch of learning. Where does all of that ability and power of the human mind come from? It comes from the fact that he is made in the image of God. And he still retains those things even after the fall. Many of those things, not all. But at the same time, man is a most terrible creature. He does the most awful things to one another. We see him so often filled with hatred, selfishness. He brings ruin and destruction. He brings pain and sorrow upon himself and others. And where does all of that come from? comes from the fact that he has fallen and he is now in a state of sin. God made us upright and gave us all the powers of being his image bearers, but we ourselves have sought after many evil devices. This is the only way to understand the world in which we live. We see it every day in the news, every day on the internet. But then second thing we say, thanks be to God for his common grace that restrains so much of this sin so that man is not as bad as he could possibly be. And we have reason to give much thanksgiving to God for common grace, especially in our land, in our day, because we do have Order, peace, tranquility, so much of it. And we should pray that the the Lord would continue to grant us this tranquil and quiet life in all godliness that we might live in godliness and dignity. But then a third application as we close this morning is that all believers who know this truth, we should have some measure of sorrow, mourning, and lamentation for what has happened to our world and to our fellow man. So much evil, so much disorder, strife, 
not because of anything God has done. He has made us in innocence, but we have brought this upon ourselves. And we as believers are the only ones who know the truth of this in this world. David said in Psalm 119 in verse 136, he said, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep thy law. And so there should be this grief in our hearts over the state of man and his sin. But then there should also be, as we'll see more tonight, great rejoicing over what God is doing for us in salvation as well. In Christ, we can be made alive. The last thing we say is that if you are here, you do not know Jesus. Then what you have seen this morning is the reality of how God sees you from heaven as he looks down upon you. And how great is your need of a Savior. That you can be forgiven, rescued from that great power and guilt of sin. Christ is offered to you this morning, the Savior of sinners. In Adam we die, in Christ we can be made alive. What shall I say? You must first feel something of that terrible state of your heart before you will ever have any desire to come to Jesus to be saved. That's what you need. You need to feel how great sin is, how much guilt, how much power it has over you. Only then Will you come to Jesus? He is offered to you freely. You may come and receive him and find the forgiveness of all your sins and power to save you from all of these corruptions that we have talked about. In Adam we are by nature, but we may be rescued out of that union with Adam and we may come into Christ and find eternal life in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do pray you would bless your word. We pray that you would make it living, abiding, powerful in every one of our hearts. That we would all come to know Jesus Christ as the Savior. That we would know his power in salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the deliverance from our evil ways. O Lord, indeed, you have made us upright and we have sought out after many sins, but there is a way of rescue for us. Have mercy upon us, we pray, and give grace for all to believe. And Lord, for us who know the Savior, give us eyes to see how great your salvation is. And be with us now and help us to honor you and please you throughout this day. In Jesus' name. Amen.